When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hey friends, Lainey here. So this week, we're doing something a little different with the episode. I interviewed my good friend, Laura Norton, who is the host of the Fall Line podcast and the One Strange Thing podcast, to celebrate the launch of her book called Lay Them to Rest. I wanted to give listeners of True Crime Cases with Lainey an opportunity to win an autographed, signed copy. Listen to the episode to learn more. Welcome back to True Crime Convos. I'm your host, Lainey, host of the independent podcast, True Crime Cases with Lainey, and It's Haunted, What Now? My paranormal podcast where I share spooky tales submitted by you, the listener. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Laura Norton, author of the newly released New York Times bestseller, Well, eventually, I hope that that will be the case. I'm trying to help you manifest that. Um, The book is titled Lay Them to Rest, and it takes readers on a really captivating and gripping journey of solving a cold case in real time. It left me and probably other readers of several of our friends have actually read the book already. Um, And I think I walked away way more educated on the different methods that go into the that go into the identification of John and Jane Doe's, but it also makes us aware of the complex ethics that kind of go into these cases um, and solving them. But that's not all Laura's known for. Um, she's also the host of a critically acclaimed podcast called The Fall Line Podcast, and that podcast focuses on covering cold cases in the Southeast. And another podcast, which is one of my favorites, is One Strange Thing. And that one delves into unexplainable stories from American News Archives. The latest release, which I think was a rebroadcast of a vampire story, was so good. And I was glad it came back up on my feed. So please help me welcome Laura to the show. This insert applause effects. (laughs) So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for allowing me to read the book before uh, the general audience gets to. Um, I thought it was really, really kind of you to trust me with this, you know, piece of material. And you did such a phenomenal job with it. Well, I knew I could trust my friends with the galley. Um, If you're not someone who is familiar with publishing, a galley is the uncorrected copy with like typos and mistakes. And I knew that my friends, I could send them to and they wouldn't like screenshot them and be like, lol, and send them back to me. So, (laughs) well, I mean, well, maybe a few. (laughs) We may still do that. We may still do that. I can take I can take it from loved ones. So but yeah, I was really excited (laughs) to share it early with my friends. um, And I have so many wonderful friends and podcasting um, and literature who were kind enough to read it ahead of time and help me share it with the world because this really 
as a community. Um, and mm-hmm. I was able to draw on the friends I've made over the past six years and forensic science and podcasting and writing to help me get the word out there. Um, because we are people who are independent podcasters. So that part is really right. important. So I'm just really grateful for all the folks who have pulled together to help me. It's incredible to see how this community has kind of come together for you to support you in this. And it makes it kind of inspiring for those who are maybe looking to self-publish a book or do anything else and know that they can lean on this community, especially um, with the type of work that you're doing and the type of message that you're trying to get out about these cold cases, how Jane and John Doe's are identified, and then introducing completely new task force to people that may not have any clue about them and how they exist, like the Trans Doe Task Force, which we'll kind of get into um, later on. Now, speaking of the book, it's set to release October 17th, 2023. Um, and it's available for pre-order right now. If you shop on Amazon, go add it to your cart right now. You can also support indie bookstores. I'm a huge fan of independent bookstores and want to keep them alive as long as possible. So if you use bookshop.org, you can go there. And I think your publishing company, are they doing a giveaway or a promotion of some sort, right? Yes, and I think I have this memorized, so let me mention this. So if you order from the Hachette website, so it's pronounced Hachette, but it's spelled like hatchet with two E's and an E, Hachette. Um, So you've probably seen it and said hatchet, right? Yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. Hachette is a wonderful publishing company. They're one of the bigger ones, but so you would assume that maybe like it's this big conglomerate, but they're wonderful and kind and pay a lot of attention to what they publish, just really great people. Um, So if you go to their website and to the page for my book, not only do they have a 20% off discount code for my book through the day of release, which is lay them to rest, easy to remember, but there are actually two bonuses you get if you order before the 17th. One of them Mm -hmm. is uh, something that your listeners and viewers will be familiar with, which is a Zoom hangout with Josh Hallmark. Yes. Exciting. Um, Yeah, Josh was kind enough for me to text slash uh, beg slash cajole him to do this with me. And it's a hangout. We're going to discuss how we use research to try and actually solve cases. Because a lot of people don't realize that if you are good at archival research and primary research, you can solve a case that way. And we're going to talk about how we use that research to work specifically on unidentified person cases, how we use NamUs, how we use Megan's wonderful project, the Charlie Project, to use, you know, mm-hmm. so many of these resources. Um, so just buying one copy gets you into that. It also gets you um, a premium podcast episode I recorded on a case I encountered when I was researching the book and I was in Illinois. I was in the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and... When I was there, I saw this big stack of files. They had files all over the walls, but there was this big stack up by themselves. And I asked them what it was, and they said, that's the Dardine family. And I hadn't heard of the Dardine family before, um, just Mm -hmm. maybe being from the South. And I found out that it was a multiple-person homicide. Um, This family in this very small town of Ina, Illinois, we'll be talking about Ina later, I'm sure, had been murdered Mm -hmm. um, together, and it was a really awful crime. And at one point, it looked like it had been solved because a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells had confessed to the crime. But then he recanted. Um, And Mm. that recantation is something that their family takes seriously. They do not believe that he committed the crimes. 
So, right. And, and I agree with them because he recanted many other crimes. But unfortunately, since that time, the case has not really been investigated. Sells was never charged. So I really wanted to do a deep dive on that case. And none of my other platforms really allow for that because it was a case that's gotten mm-hmm. a lot of press. Um, the fall line covers cases that have gotten no press. But I did want to put out an episode that gave them a little more press, more recent press, and really dug into the archives on that case. So that does come with the book as well. Awesome. Okay, well, I'm going to do that too, because I love that. And I'll do one for a listener as let well, me men- so that they get let a chance. Let me do mention that if you already pre-ordered and you're sitting there like, well, I already bought it and I can't have that, you can have that. Anywhere you pre-ordered, if you pre-ordered in February, you just go to the Hachette website, scroll all the way to the bottom, and it has info where you can enter your receipt and you can get the bonuses. So. Awesome. Okay, I love that. That's so exciting. And honestly, being able to sit in on any type of session where you get to hear Laura and Josh kind of go over what goes into their process is something that will definitely make every pre-ordering this book like not seem, you know, like a big deal because it is such a you get such a great thing out of that out of connecting with you and Josh on it. So you both are incredibly intelligent. I was so excited to see Josh in the book. I love Josh. I've you know, I I feel like I've been with him since before he blew up with true crime BS and I'm so proud of the strides that he's made within the um, podcasting world and all of the other things that he's helped do. He's doing it right, in my opinion, and I think you're doing it right, too, which is why I'm always so happy to help spread whatever message you ever want to spread about any case that you're working on. Um, But I've always been curious. So, you know, I've seen podcasters kind of make either self-published books or work with a publishing company to compile their episodes together into a book format. And I was always interested about how, you know, that process got started. How are you motivated to say like, hey, I should write a book about this? Like, how did you come up with the idea that you wanted to create a concept around either featuring Ina's case or just the fact that you wanted to, you know, dive into cold cases and does like how did this whole concept come to be? Sure. So I don't know how unusual this is among podcasters, um, but I was an English professor for 15 years. Um, I've been a professional writer since 2005. So, you know, because mm. my degrees are in creative writing. So I think a lot of English professors are maybe in literature. So when you're in creative writing, um, you're expected to publish. So I've been publishing that whole time. Yeah. So, um, you know, my work is mostly in short form. So I wrote short stories, um, creative nonfiction. That was my area. Um, And I had been Mm -hmm. asked to write a book before, but I was like, yeah, I like writing short stuff. And so then I started working on podcasts and that was long form for me. I didn't really have time to write a book because I was doing all that intensive research. How this book came about was... When we did our series on the victims of Samuel Little, which was the most intensive thing. Incredible stuff. We did, besides our series on the Grady babies kidnappings. That was our other most intensive series that we've done. Um, mm-hmm. I got a lot of queries from editors who were interested in me working on a book. Um, but they wanted something about serial killers, which is not something I'm interested mm. in writing about. Because the whole point of the Samuel Little series was to not write about Samuel Little. We sat mm-hmm. down and said, for this series, we want Samuel Little to be a ghost. 
if he ever heard this, we'd want him to be furious. We'd want him to see himself as an invisible person in the background fading away as the people who matter come forward. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the people who matter. And the people who matter are the people who get the least attention. So I said, what I want to do is write about my passion area, which is unidentified persons. And I also want to write about forensic science um, because I have been having to learn about forensic science in order to really work on these case files. And I want to write about the people who've been teaching me. And luckily, um, my literary agent uh, was very supportive of that. And then the editors who read my work were very supportive of that. And I found the perfect home at Hachette um, with a really, really great editor who saw exactly what I wanted to do. I have a working partner, Dr. Amy Michael, who's a biological anthropologist who practices forensic anthropology. She's been a really good friend of mine for years. We work on cases together. There's always like 10, 12, 15, 20 cases going. And a case that we had been hoping to get for a while to work on lined up perfectly. So that became the focal case of the book. So that's kind of how it got started. I don't know a lot about self-publishing and indie publishing, you know, 15 years ago when I was teaching, I would tell kids to stay away from that because it was vanity publishing. Mm-hmm. Now it's a whole different ballgame. Now it's a really great yeah. and thriving world. And I would tell students now if I had them in the classroom, look into it because people are succeeding. And it's not a place yeah. where people are preying on you. People are doing wonderful work there. I just don't have a lot of experience with it. So, How was the... You've you've recently been featured, right, as one of the TikTokers in true crime that's kind of doing it right and all this stuff. I was so ecstatic to see you. Our mutual friend Sarah Turney was on there and other wonderful and responsible true crime creators on TikTok because it can be kind of grimy, right? Um, And I think within any niche in TikTok, you have some great creators and then you have some not so great creators. Um, So how have you noticed the shift in right we've been podcasting for a while now right and social media for the longest time was based off of twitter for the most part like a lot of our stuff was twitter based um but tiktok came and then all of a sudden you had this kind of world opened up to you as a uh, podcaster and there's some podcasters who got on that train early and were like hey i'm building an audience on there i think about bob mata for defense diary who's have like twenty five thousand, you know um followers on there. So how has social media helped you in this particular case with promoting the book and then also maybe even bringing awareness to cases that you're working on that aren't featured in the book? Well, Lainey, um, (laughs) people who are watching this will be like, why was she laughing so hard? Um, I was laughing so hard because like TikTok is a steep learning curve for me. Um, Sarah encourages me every day. She's like, look, you got featured. You're getting better. When like, meanwhile, like I'm hanging on by a thread. I love watching TikTok. <laughs> like I spend a lot of time on TikTok. I love it. Um, part of Same. this is perhaps like um, I do not have the maturity I should for my age. Like I'm like 10 years younger <laughs> mentally, but I love TikTok. Um, but learning how to use it's a little bit different. I've always used mm-hmm. social media for cases, um, but I often say that the fall line has listeners versus maybe fans, which I don't think is a bad mm-hmm. thing. Um, but we've always been very much in the background because we're foregrounding cases. And so I think the thing is, you know, a lot of times if you have fans, fans want your stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and fall line listeners want to act. They want mm-hmm. to help a case. And so now I'm kind of learning how to say, hi, 
I'm the person you've been listening to for six years. Um, I, I did this thing that I think is really useful information that will teach you so many mm -hmm. things and it helps cases. Um, but also buy my stuff, which is a really incredibly uncomfortable position for me to be in. I don't even like to tell people what my favorite color is or like anything about me um, or ha have my yeah. picture taken, you know, or have any attention at all. So it's really strange. So I'm trying to learn how to use social media um, in the way that I think a lot of people like you or Sarah or Charlie or a lot of our other friends are able to do more naturally. Um, it, it's It's a mm -hmm. learning curve. No, and I think one of the great things about you is that you're deliberate in what you post, right? So it's never like really off the cuff, it, like for some of my stuff. Sometimes when I get pissed off at people, <laughs> as you know, I kind of just like jump on and I'm like, hey, I'm really upset and angry about this. Okay, bye. And then I move on because I got it out and, you know, word vomited on TikTok. But I really like that you and even Sarah, too, both of you have this way of bringing forward a message that is a concise and b impactful so it's never something that i'm thinking oh, this was just a flippant thing she decided to do um like some of my stuff is right because my social media across the board outside of tiktok is streamlined to the specific show that i host right so i have one specific to true crime cases and to my paranormal show and then to my voice acting but tiktok is kind of like my my you know, my kitchen sink. I throw everything in there. I'm like, want to talk about a podcast? Sure. You want to talk about this cool new product I found? Amazing. Um, but I really think that it's been interesting to see you kind of broach this because I do know you're a private person and stuff and you are doing such a great job, I think, of utilizing it in a way that is comfortable for you, but then also is maintaining the boundaries, which sometimes creators can have a really hard time doing is creating boundaries for themselves when it comes to utilizing their social media and how much of themselves they reveal to their audience. Right. And you do a great job in the book of this, too, is that you. You give us if, if we didn't know you, right, like if I didn't know you, you do a really fantastic job of letting us know your kind of humor that, you know, we all know and love you for um, personally and, you know, the 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 insightfulness that you have and the questions that you ask yourself whenever you were going through the research or when you whenever you were looking through documents or engaging with Amy, um, even in the college students who were helping you and other um, of the forensic professionals that you worked with. I thought it was really great that you offered that insight. And it just demonstrates to me how serious you took this process and how much restraint you likely showed when it came to how much information you gave away they had to put they had Thank to you, pull Deanna. it out of me sometimes um i <laughs> i'm i'm not yeah, surprised I, uh, they, if it was up to me it would have been like i was there <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> um they had to be like put a little more of yourself in there um it's hard you know i don't but then yeah. you know people it's I have to take my own advice because when I write about doe cases, um, I tell people all the time that it's hard to get doe cases attention because people have been disconnected from their identities. Um, I really I talk about this a lot, but I really cannot stand the phrase giving someone back their name because that implies that mm. you have a power um, and that you're granting someone something. I don't I don't wow. like it um, because they have never not had their names you are not giving them something they have been disconnected 
from the identity that they've always had. And they've only been disconnected in an official paper way. They have their names. I don't like that idea. Mm. The humanity is always there. It just implies a giving and taking, a power imbalance that Mm -hmm. bothers me. This is probably just semantic. But no, I love that. Like, I mean, truly for me, because I've said that before, you know, I've I've done that. Like, I'm glad this person got their name back. Um, We all have. But it's a great way to be introspective about it and be responsible with it. I I love that. There's not a perfect phrase for it. You know what I mean? But just the idea. It's simply what I think about it is like, for some reason, this thread popped, this thread popped, this Mm. thread popped. Right. But piece A and piece Mm -hmm. B are still there. You know, and I think when people say something like giving someone back their names, I don't want people to feel bad about it because you're just trying to express a kind thankfulness. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes it's when people on the side of doing the good thing think too much about Mm -hmm. how great they are for doing that. That's where the danger comes in, because when it's the same idea of like when we do a service for a family, whether it's giving Mm -hmm. a family a platform to speak, right, or lending a skill one thing that Brooke always says is that does not mean that we have any more wisdom than a family, mm-hmm. that we know better than the family does, than their story, that we have all we are doing is offering a skill set. Do you know what I mean? Right. We're not in a higher yeah. position of power. And sometimes to me, the give take language is a power differential that makes me uncomfortable. Right. But mm-hmm. when it gets into the language of storytelling, I know for a fact that in a dose story, you have to give people something to grab onto to connect to the story because they've been Mm -hmm. disconnected. And that's when I began to learn about science and everything I could about demographics and finding other stories nearby that could be related so that I could help people emotionally connect to the story. That's why I learned about the scientists so I could talk about the scientists. And then eventually people smarter than myself, my friends would say, you have to talk about yourself too to help connect the dots there, to create the full emotional right. experience. And that's when I said, okay, yes. I'll quit being stubborn. Um, but, you yes. know, because that's, you that's a that. thread too, right? That's- it is. It is. And it, you, I mean, again, so I'm a voracious reader. I love reading. And part of that is being able to connect with the characters, right? I read nonfiction, nonfiction and fiction books. When fiction, I definitely want to connect with the characters so I can, you know, stay along with the story and be invested in it. With nonfiction, I want to feel like I'm standing right there with you, that I'm watching you do these things and going like, wow, Um, which is what I felt like the entire time I was reading it. You know, like I have a very uh, big imagination. So Amy was not what I thought she looked like. Um, Whenever you showed a picture of her to me, I was like, oh, my God. okay." Um, Nobody was how I imagined except you. Right. Um, I purposefully like didn't want to look at anything regarding the case or anything like that because I wanted to keep it um, real. And one of the things I noticed is you, you're you very inspiring to me in terms of your dedication to families and how you interact with them and how you maintain connections with them, right? And there are other creators within this space who do the same thing. I think about Vincent from Gone Cold, who literally anytime he's um, connected with a family he maintains this connection with them throughout, regardless of how long ago the episode he released, you know, was done. He's maintaining these connections, which is something that I struggle to do, even in general in my own life, like with my friends. And so taking on creating and maintaining these long-term connections of saying like, yeah, I'm always going to advocate for you. I'm always going to do this. 
it feels like it would be such a strong emotional pull on yourself. And so do you ever experience that? Like, do you ever feel like you have to balance this emotional toll of working on these cases and helping these families with this passion for justice that you have, like wanting to identify these families or wanting to find answers, like for the twins case, for instance, like wanting to find all of this and then feeling like maybe I'm letting them down because I'm not doing enough. Like, that's how I think I would feel. I would feel like I'm not doing enough and I could be doing more. But then I have all of these other obligations like at home and stuff. Well, when it comes to the cases for the fall line, I do want to highlight that a lot of that falls on Brooke, too. Um, So for Mm -hmm. people who may not know, my co-creator for the fall line, um, and you don't hear her a lot. So I think people forget she's there because she doesn't like to be on mic. Um, but Brooke Hargrove is a licensed professional counselor and like 70% of her job, if not 80% of her job, is communicating with families because she's trained to do that. And it's her mm-hmm. job to not only do initial meetings with families, um, but to send families questions ahead of time, to do the interviews, to make sure they're trauma informed, to make sure that families get their transcripts afterwards to read over um to do follow-up and then that's the point where i come in and i'm working with families on scripts and that's also when i'm getting people to resources like season of justice and we're going back and forth and like maybe if a family's having a hard time connecting with one law enforcement agency that's where if they're in the south i can pull in some of my connections and say we'll try this person try Mm -hmm. this person that's when we start sending out like press releases things like that um but every family is different you know what I mean? Some fa- some mm-hmm. families say, I want you to do this and this. And they don't want continual contact. They want us to be a media resource for them. And mm-hmm. some families um, we're in regular contact with, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, or they just want us to have, like, you know, publish an update for them. You know, some families, like, in, you know, Arlene, someone you and I know both, you know, really well um, from Leon Lorellis's mm-hmm. case, like, in, you know, weekly contact. But... Yeah. I think a difference is on a case where you work on the case from the beginning to the end, like the case in my book where you start with a person who is unidentified and they are identified. I mean, I don't feel like that's a big spoiler because this case has resolution. And then I spend a lot of time with the family um, and still work with them today. I meet the family at the point where the case is resolved and I'm still working with them today. And I I think the difference is there is that most people who work on a case – they in contact with the family when the case is resolved. And it's not that they cut a family mm-hmm. off. It's simply that that's their forensic job, whether, you know, it's a scientist or a genealogist, because that's professionally correct. You know, mm-hmm. so the only person they'd be in contact with at that point is law enforcement. And law enforcement checks in every so often. But I think yeah. people, you know, when you watch a Dateline or 48 Hours or whatever else, and this is something I had to learn. Because I used to think, and I bet you feel this way too, um, because for those mm-hmm. of us who really want to see cases solved, and that's why a lot of us got into this in the first place, is you think, I can find that piece, and it clicks in, mm-hmm. and it's everything's okay. But the problem is, and this is what I've had to figure out, is it's not. Because yeah. there's, even if someone's ID'd, and even if it's not a homicide, in this case, you know, we're dealing with a homicide. But even if it's not, a family still has questions. They have trauma. They have so many other things. So yeah, the aftermath of that has taught me so much that it's not 
over. Some things are right. resolved, but there's so much that goes on afterwards. Healing, processing, <laughs> memorials, yeah. you know. So it's just, I think that it's a very different kind of process. Supporting a family before they have answers, supporting a family when they have some answers, and supporting a family after they have answers. And it, that can't all fall on someone without training. It's also getting people yeah. to the right places, you know? So yeah. No, I think that's really important to note that, like, um, a lot of the people that I admire do have, you know, a background in victim advocacy. Like Kristen Seavey mm -hmm. from Murder, she told, is a certified victim's advocate. Um, and Brooke on the fall line, you know, is a licensed professional. So there's – it's not to say that you can't be – like, Vincent is not, you know, a, a licensed victim's advocate. But he's incredibly empathetic and he's resolute on – doing things the right way and for his own integrity and everything. And I think if anybody meets or listens to that podcast and meets Vincent, they automatically get it. You know, um, there were some exciting parts in the book. Um, <laughs> we get to meet Lucy, you know, who is, as I imagined, a little like snuffleupagus, like mouth, nose breathing pug type of dog and very old she's uh <laughs> i was surprised partially paralyzed too which i don't think yeah. oh no i don't yeah. think you said yeah. that she's well you know <clears throat> um she has a little harness so you know <laughs> she's carried around but you also include because you were introduced by amy to the franchise 90 day fiance which i watch before the 90 days and beyond the other way um and i thought that that was great that you included that because you know, you weren't a reality TV watcher before, as you said, um, but I, I wanted to understand why you included it. Was it to add some levity? Was it just to go like, hey, we need a break in the seriousness and we need to have like a highlight? No, because it's a giant part of hanging out with forensic anthropologists. <laughs> they all watch the trashiest television. Um, I know you're a, a Bravo girl. They don't watch Bravo. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't watch The Bachelor. They watch, okay, to a person. TLC. They watch TLC <laughs> and they watch Love is Blind and, uh, you know, The Ultimatum, uh, The Ultimatum, but just the queer version. Uh, we only like that one. Mm -hmm. um, all of them. All of them that I know. And they got me into it. I had surgery and we only had one TV in the house for a long time. So between my husband and my son, like, it, I was done for. Like, I didn't watch TV for, mm -hmm. like, two or three years. And that's not a brag. That was, like, unless I wanted to watch it on my phone, I just didn't know what was it happening. It wasn't happening. Until, like, yeah, yeah, unless they were all gone and I was alone. And this is when I was still teaching, so it's not like I was working from home. Like, I was just, oh, well, for me, you know? It's, mm -hmm. like, some child show where my husband's weird supernatural soap operas he likes. You know, like that supernatural soap you know opera. What I mean, like, 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 yeah. a, like, literally, like supernatural, supernatural yeah, like that stuff. I'm like, I guess you can go watch your supernatural soap opera guy. Um, but <laughs> oh, Jensen was in Days of Our Lives. I do know that because my best friend dated his cousin. Oh, so well, um, I'll maybe maybe I'll come home and my husband will be watching Days of Our Lives because he sure <laughs> likes Jensen Ackles a lot. But yeah. when I had surgery, um, I was sitting watching. You know, Amy was like, okay, now's the time. And then suddenly I was hooked. And I, I mean, I think that they probably 
need to let their brains have a break. I don't know if it's from the cultural anthropology background. Like, I'm sure I could write, I'm mm-hmm. sure I could like BS you an answer if I really wanted to. <laughs> but I think it's just like something stupid to do. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Probably yes. from like looking at horrific things all day long. I know that helps me. And and now yeah. my biggest, by the way, accomplishment of the past year is our friend Kristen Seavey from Murder, she told, which is like an extremely well put together, well written, beautiful podcast, so sensitive. She's a victim's mm-hmm. advocate. She's so kind and smart. Like she's personally working on trying to solve some cases. I've ruined her. Um she watched <laughs> six seasons of 90 Day Fiance before the 90 Days. She's on to the other oh, way. I love it. Um, she just is sending me the kind of text messages you read about in the book daily while she's editing. <laughs> so I feel really proud of that, that I've probably brought down our IQ at least 10 points in the past couple of months. That's okay. So I'm so proud. I'm honestly thrilled mm. because now we'll have something to talk about next week because um, Who's your okay? So from the original franchise, Ninety Day Fiance, who's the couple you always are like? God, these people. Danielle and Muhammad will always be ace yeah. for me, um, because it was just a gem and very sad to watch. Their <laughs> canon, just for you know, catchphrases like evidence, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, there's just certain things, right? Um, yes. But there's a newer couple that's a little more fascinating. I don't know the last time you watched. Jasmine? Yeah, yeah, Gino and Jasmine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was, well, I, when I, when we were first introduced to her, I was very like, oh, great. Like, she's super educated. Like, she's going to be like, and then it just goes super downhill after that. Like, incredibly jealous. And Gino's just weird. Um, So, yeah, if you don't watch 90 Day Fiance, highly recommend because I do the same thing. Like, I watch reality TV because I want to be able to, disconnect from my day job and then what I also do on the podcast, right? Like I I do very heavy things like employee relations is not the field of HR you get into if you want to have fun all day, you know? Um, it is my own version of a reality show is what I'll say. It's like I <laughs> new characters every day, new issues every day. Um, my people aren't fighting over like who cheated and who didn't do what. It's how they looked at me. Did they use a trash can in my area? Did they move my chair? Things like that. So all the fun stuff you get to deal with um, with professionals, which is my favorite. Um. I just keep like, but sadly, like all I want to do is go on a reality uh, TV podcast and talk about my love for Love is Blind. But no one ever invites me because they're like, oh, you're busy with your files. <laughs> and I'm so yeah, sad. Like, you can't talk about Love is Blind. I only watched the first one. Um, but I hear this, the other ones, like the other after one are still pretty good and stuff, but I was really invested in one. I hate, I hate like TV shows that get people married or whatever end result. Cause I get so invested. I have a strong parasocial relationships with people. I admit that about myself, but that's just cause I don't know. I enjoy it. Um, and then I get really sad when they break up. So it is what it is. Um, now, back to your writing process. So I know what it's like to research and write, you know, a podcast episode. I don't go to the depths that you guys do, like you and Josh do it or anything like that, because you're doing investigative podcasting. And I think that's really different than what I do, right? Like I'm sharing a case and then sharing another case the next episode. So I very rarely stay on the same thing or on the same topic. 
So how is that writing process different from working on the book, for instance? Like, were you writing when you like when you're investigating Ina's case? Are you writing a book at the same time? Or is this like well after Ina's case has been solved and you're like, no, I'm going to write a book about this? Yes and no. So I'm working on the book and working on the case at the same time, but like in bits and pieces. So the whole time mm. I'm working, I'm recording. Like ninety-five <clears throat> percent of what I did was recorded. Um, Which we know you don't do well in the field, apparently. Yeah, according to the well, book. <laughs> yeah, I can do it well in the field, like in a good setup, like if I'm recording like a nice interview. Um, but recording yeah. Amy is like trying to walk a cat. Um, you know, she uh, if you put a microphone in front of her, she she suddenly acts like she's an interrogation room. So right, she's like, I yeah, guess. I gotta stick them around. And then like, of course, then they have me in a room where they're doing trying to do a forensic exam in an attic and I'm trying to record them all. But they're also demanding that I provide them with light. So that's really fun. Um, but yeah, I recorded almost everything, like whether it was on my phone or like my field setup. So that so I had notes constantly. Um, all of those interviews mm-hmm. I was doing with experts. I was doing them the whole time. So I had some oh, from wow. two years ago, some from six months ago. And so I was bringing them in the whole time. And I, cause you know, like it would be hard, you know, someone would be in the field, like in a different country, you know, I'd be bringing them in. Yeah. Um, I was doing research on cases and, you know, one thing is, you know, several conversations would have to sometimes be condensed. That's why that notes in the book. Cause you literally do not want things to be in real time sometimes. You know, because if I talk to someone here and then I talk to them again eight hours later, you don't want that. You want it to be one conversation. Um, Right. Or you want to fall asleep. But (laughs) so we're doing all of that. Um, The events in the book happened in the order they happened in, you know, because it's a very clear timeline and you have to show a case Mm -hmm. in the order that it happened in. Um, And we just laid out uh, in terms of the science to match the order of the book so that people could understand what was happening, you know, at the same time. Yeah. So if we're about to get into the forensic anthropology, you got to understand forensic anthropology. I'm going to explain odontology, which is forensic study of teeth right before we go to the dentist. So you can understand that part. Um, Yeah, I was writing bits and pieces, you know what I mean? So I'd write up like my Mm -hmm. thoughts on a day and then I'd start working on a chapter. But the bulk of the writing happened right after the solve. And then I basically wrote day and night. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I don't even know how you guys do things like that, where you have this recollection outside of the audio recordings of thinking, like, this is what I did. Like, how do you maintain something like that, like that recollection in your head of like these steps you took? Is it just based off of the recordings that your memories jogged or you're like, oh, yeah, we massive did this or notes. notes I took? Massive notes. So mass- massive yeah. notes, recordings, um, you know, text message. Amy and I have, you know, thousands of text messages, you know what I mean? And so a lot of I would copy those into Word documents, emails back and forth, or Discord. Um, you know, that was a big thing with when I was following Redgrave Research, who are the Mm -hmm. investigative genetic genealogists who identified Ina Jane Doe, um, you know, they were very polite in that they had a discord. Um, So that was helpful. That was so, man. Yeah. I, yeah. I I don't even know how to use discord. So I totally empathize with you there. (laughs) Oh my God. I I wouldn't know what to do, but I hated that you missed it. Like, I was like, no, but also I wouldn't have been able, I'm the same way. I was like, nine o'clock is my bedtime, guys. I I cannot. In my defense, (laughs) um, I know that they are incredibly talented, but so this is just a little fun thing. I haven't talked about this yet, so it's just for your listeners, okay? Yeah, just for your listeners. 
So I knew they were really good because mm-hmm. um, not only have I known them for a long time, and so this is Redgrave Forensic um, Research Services. They're also the Transitive Task Force. Um, so that's their nonprofit. But I've mm-hmm. I've known Lee and Anthony um, and Victor Veldstra for a long time. But I knew that they were going to identify her, not only because they're good, but because they found my husband's father. Um, and yeah, oh, yeah. You, and they mm-hmm. found him very quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, he's not my husband's not adopted. So it wasn't an adoption mm-hmm. case. Um, and it turned out his, he had died a very long time ago, like when he was 18. So. Oh, wow. um, but so I, I knew how quickly they could work, but that at least had taken like a day or two. You know what I mean? So I wasn't expecting yeah. them to solve it in a couple of hours or maybe I wouldn't have gone to sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like so luckily they had notes in discord. You know, there was just so many things I can pull from um, when there was a press conference. You know, that was luckily broadcast and I taped mm-hmm. it. So I just had so much material to work from. And also um, having been a creative writer for 15, 20 years, well, and then professionally, and then my whole life before that, mm-hmm. um, you just get good at remembering things and describing scenes, I think, maybe. so. Amazing. Brag. Love that. I mean, I figure so, with all those student <laughs> loans, I can brag a little, right? <laughs> right? You should. I mean, my God. Let's hope they get uh, forgiven soon. Hey friends, fall's around the corner and life's getting busier, right? Well, let me introduce you to Factor, your new mealtime hero for those days that just don't stop. Ready for some goodness? Factor, America's top ready-to-eat meal kit, has your back. Say goodbye to cooking stress and hello to chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. Convenience and health? Yes, please! Summer's still shining and so are your goals. Forget about extra trips to the store. Factor's fresh meals ready in two minutes are here to rescue your time and your taste buds. Just heat and enjoy and you're back in action. Explore 34-plus mouth-watering options that won't break your stride. And if you're ready to level up, dive into Gourmet Plus meals boosting premium ingredients like broccolini and truffle butter. Talk about treating yourself right. Short on lunchtime? Lunch to Go has you covered with quick, wholesome meals for your on-the-go lifestyle. And for those watching calories, there's a whole lineup of calorie-smart meals under 550 calories per serving. Need a protein kick? Meet Protein Plus meals with 30 grams or more per serving. Plus, Factors got you covered with 45-plus add-ons from apple cinnamon pancakes to refreshing cold-pressed juices. But it's not just about you. It's about the planet, too. Factor offsets delivery emissions, sources renewable energy, and brings sustainably sourced seafood to your table. This is your month. Say hello to effortless eating. Head to factormeals.com slash Laney50. And guess what? You can grab 50% off with code Laney50. That's F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash L-A-N-I-E 50. Code Laney50 for 50% off. Hey, listeners, did you know we're cooped up indoors about 90% of the time? But here's the shocker. Indoor air can be dirtier than outside air, like two to five times worse, or even a whopping 100 times worse in some cases. Hold on to your hats because nearly half the nation's rocking unhealthy air quality. The WHO says nine out of 10 of us are breathing in polluted air that's causing millions of premature deaths worldwide. But guess what? We're not just taking it lying down. 
Enter Air Doctor, the air purifier that's grabbed CNN, Money, and ABC headlines. It's like a superhero for your lungs, capturing 99.99% of nasties with its ultra HEPA filter. Those tiny allergens don't stand a chance. Air Doctor wipes out particles as small as 0.003 microns like a ninja for your air. And the Air Doctor 3000, it's turbocharging my space with four air changes every hour. And those Whisper Jet fans, they're as chill as a cucumber. Buckle up for the deal of a lifetime, folks. Air Doctor is giving you a 30-day money-back guarantee. Head to airdoctorpro.com, plug in the promo code TCFC, and back up 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Don't miss out. Airdoctorpro.com, promo code TCFC. Let's clean up that air and rock on. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en Español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital, así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. One thing I thought was interesting, so I do voice acting, as you know, and I've also narrated some audiobooks. And I was very excited at the, you know, idea that you were going to be releasing an audiobook of the um, audiobook version of the book, because that's typically, it's what I would have preferred for myself, because I love listening to your voice. I've already told you this a billion times. Fangirl over here on Laura Norton's voice, number one. Nobody can take that from me. Um, But... I thought it was interesting that you kind of had to, you know, audition. It wasn't just a like, uh, hey, you're going to narrate your audiobooks, which threw me for a loop because I would think most companies would want their author to um, to do it. But maybe some of their authors can't <laughs> read uh, a script that I well. I think it's actually <laughs> normal to have the author audition if the author is a possibility. Because you and you yeah. and I both know that reading a script naturally, like reading like you're talking is hard. 
Yes, it, it, it takes is. years. Um, and so I had to audition. I think it was just to make sure that because, you know, a lot of podcasts aren't scripted like ours are. Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. And so I had to audition and then I had to ask you for some tips <laughs> for doing an audio book. <laughs> I was like, get ready, girl, because yeah. it's a long. How long did it take you to record it? Because I already pre-ordered it on my Audible, um, so I'm excited. But how long did it take you to actually go through the process? Six days. Oh, wow. That's pretty short. I mean, that's great. Six days. It was, it you was know, long. Yeah. It, it's intensive when you do it that. And it's back to back, I'm assuming. No, it was broken up a little bit um, because oh, because of that. um most some people may know this, some may not. I had chronic laryngitis that almost took my voice out for good, so it's mm. it's been you know healed pretty much now. But they wanted to add in some yeah. days just in case I decided to go out again, so, <laughs> some rest yeah. to get you some rest. No, I think that's really great, and it's honestly healthy for your voice. That's why my books take at least uh, like a month to work on it, so I can. Because you know I'm also recording for the shows, doing other projects and stuff, so I have to be really cognizant and a lot of people don't maybe think about that when they're listening to audiobooks or listening to podcasts about the impact it can have on your voice um because this voice that i'm using now is not my podcast voice it is not the voice you hear when you're listening to um true crime case it's also not the voice you're going to hear if you listen to any of the audiobooks i've done don't tell me if you ever do um because it would <laughs> kill me if i knew <laughs> don't ever well no please. <laughs> we're not breathing right right now if i, if I talked like this yeah then i would lose my voice in like an hour yeah Yes, it would be terrible. And I'd also, I'm sitting down. So um, key thing, I would think, uh, just a heads up for podcasters, stand up when you're recording. It helps so much with your breaths and um, making sure you read the sentence all the way through without going (gasps) in the middle of your episode. Um, One of the things we talked about at the beginning of the uh, discussion was your collaboration with other forensic professionals and other experts within the field. I learned so much about teeth, about bones, um, but then also the the collaborative efforts and the amount of teamwork that are required to just look into a case like this. And I was just hoping you could elaborate on on the importance of that and how that helped with Ina's case. Sure. Um, so every case is different and it's going to take a different kind of team, you know? So Mm -hmm. some cases are not going to need what, say, Amy does, which is she comes in and, you know, a lot of, well, first off, let me say that a lot of cases never need this much work because a lot of cases Mm -hmm. are weeks old or months old and or even a few years old and they go straight to a forensic anthropologist and the forensic anthropologist is able to make the positive ID and you never hear about it in the papers, right? Right. Or uh, a medical examiner opens the file back up and they're able to make a positive ID. Or a forensic odontologist comes in and consults on an older case and the same, right? But mm-hmm. when you get to a case like this where so much work was done on the case file and you go through and you say, okay, they've tried this, 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 and this. This is where you go, okay, we need to get collaborative. And mm-hmm. one thing I really appreciate about Amy, um, and that's Dr. Amy Michael from the book, is that she's really interested in creative solutions, right? So she has a couple of ideas that are kind of newer in the field. She thinks that if there are skeletal remains available, it's a really great idea to do a skeletal reanalysis every 10 years at least, maybe every five. And that's because they learn new things. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's not like bones sit around and human remains remain static. We learn new things every day. We get better at ancestry estimations. We get better at recognizing that a population in an area may not self-identify the way that an anthropologist off in a different state might identify them. We talk about mm-hmm. this in the book, right? But I mean, how someone's loved ones see them is not perhaps how an anthropologist would classify them. So if you, right, li- right. you know, and the the example I use in the book is talking about someone who's Dominican, right? And someone who's Dominican can have any various estimates of ancestry and how their ancestry estimates line up. I mean, you know, let me give an example here just for me, um, people who can't see mm-hmm. me like I'm a white, just a white woman. <laughs> I'm 33%. What? Yeah, I'm 33% Swiss German. Uh, I don't know if you mm-hmm. knew that off the jump, Lainey. No, <laughs> no, I had no clue, yeah. honestly. Right? But, you know, that's not something that, you know, has much to do with my identity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read to an anthropologist as European, right? But mm-hmm. in terms, and because I'm 99% European. But someone from the Dominican Republic is going to have a really diverse ancestry in general, or maybe not, right? right? You may have someone there who has a very high percentage of indigenous ancestry or a very high Mm -hmm. percentage of European ancestry or African ancestry or any variation thereof. And that may or may not have much to do with how they identify in life. Right. Yeah. And how they identify culturally and how their family would recognize them. And so just that kind of like cultural awareness, not only of who people are in life, but like where you're living. You know what I mean? Like, do you like as as an anthropologist, you can't just be a forensic anthropologist. You need to remember you're an anthropologist, you're a cultural anthropologist as well, and that, you know, the place where you're living, you know, the people that are living there. And that's why Mm -hmm. so many of my friends like to include that kind of information on their reports. Right. So don't just say, you know, this this male may be and they use language on these reports that goes back to the old school language. So when I say Hispanic, and I know that's not particularly exact, but just understand that's how they classify stuff. So they may say Mm -hmm. this 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 male is Hispanic or African. Right. Or maybe, you know, African or white. But that may not read to a family of Dominican descent who is missing a loved one. Mm hmm. Uh, agreed. So I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of transformational for me reading it, how, y- you know, it's it's things you don't think about because you're not exposed to it every day. Right. Um, but it was interesting seeing how you navigated around the discussions and including across the board for law enforcement, the forensic scientists that were involved in the other professionals that you were dealing with about how. M- the need to check a box was so important. And it was like, yeah, all we did before was just check this box. But now we're adding additional information to say like, hey, we may see these types of features or we may see this demographic um, in there. And I thought that was really interesting because it helped really shift my perspective, which then when you started introducing Redgrave Research and the Transdo Task Force, my mind was blown because I'm always a person who thinks, Dang, what could have been if we had this before, you know, today, Mm -hmm. if we had this in the 1960s, right? And this is literally what I was explaining to my husband because he was like, oh, well, you know, are you, did you review the book for her? Are you like, and I was like, no, I'm going to interview 
her for the book and and talk about the book and stuff. And I was like, it's really interesting and really great. And I went into the Transdo Task Force in particular because, you know, um, the identif- the way a person identifies is what matters, right? So to their family, same thing. Like if if I told you know if I told Brett like if you were um, a trans woman. And you decided to wear a brown wig forever and you wore a certain distinct style of women's clothing or what we say are women's clothing and stuff. If somebody found you and you had been hit by a car and you had no identification, they're going to say found with a brown wig, found with this type of style hair killing. But they're going to call you a white male with red hair, essentially, and say that. And I wouldn't know that that was you. Right. I'd be like, oh, you know, because that's not how you identify. So I thought it was really impactful for the reader at least to to understand that there are so many nuances with identity and i think that you did such a great job bringing that forward and caused you know me to think about that and go man i really wonder what cases could have been solved or what cases could have been looked at differently had we had the appropriate identification for them or a closer identification to them. Yeah, and I think a big thing that folks have pointed out, um, both the anthropologists who were talking about sex um, and folks in the Transdo Task Force um, who were talking mm-hmm. about just better language, better descriptions, because you can see both homophobia and transphobia coming through in reports, right? Because even right. like you just said with that example for Brett, it would be pretty likely that it would say, a red-haired man found with women's items. It wouldn't even say what mm-hmm. they were. So we'd be see, we'd be sitting here going, "What women's items? They could be all kinds yeah. of stuff, you know." So, and I mean, that was the same issue we see in the Lisk case right now, um, where we have an unidentified decedent who is described as a quote Asian male unquote with women's clothing. What are the? I want to know what the items are. But we right. have, you know, the description's not given. And to me, at least, there's because homophobia and transphobia can cross over like this. Right. So mm-hmm. what are the what are the items like? I'm sure they're described in various places, but a lot of national news sources don't include that. Don't do and it. if you know mm-hmm. someone, you're going to know what they have, you know, like what, what their clothes look like, et cetera. But if I look at the report of a missing um, cisgender woman, I'm going to get more detail. And that's the kind of stuff that um, both uh, Taylor Flattery, who um, I interviewed, who's the anthropologist who was looking for, you know, if she sees some signs that maybe someone was not cisgender or was gender expansive, she wants to just make sure to include a little more detail so that people are writing better reports, right? That's all mm-hmm. she's asking for there, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. the Transdo Task Force then has an easier job when they're going through these reports that that's it, it's one of yeah. those things on the opposite side there uh, a case that we covered on the fall line is the case of julie doe right and julie doe is a famous unidentified person from the 1980s and she was a trans woman but that was not discovered until the 2000s and mm-hmm. The reason why that matters is it's not that she's scissor trans. The reason why that matters is because if they had known that she was a trans woman, they could have traced some things about her to help identify her, right? Mm-hmm. Because she had um, had uh, full gender confirmation surgery at that time, right? 
So mm-hmm. there were a limited number of hospitals who were doing surgery at that time in the United States where she could have gotten breast augmentation. Um, she'd had her Adam's apple shaved down. She'd had um, some facial feminization surgery. There were so many mm-hmm. things they could have looked into where those records are just not good anymore. If people had had better education, if law enforcement yeah. had been given just better education to recognize these things, because the way that we trace implants nowadays, it's the really good, like great serial numbers on that stuff. Yeah. But we didn't have them then. But they could have used just the process of elimination to narrow it down to two or three hospitals. Because, right. And then found yeah, something. Found something to help identify her. So it's not mm-hmm. about her being cis or trans there. It's about having the understanding and the nuance there to know this is the hospital to go to. But they right. didn't. Um, and so they didn't. And by that point, the records on her implants were less useful. Wow. That's in, that's really frustrating. Um, and one of the other things I, I kept feeling throughout the book after, you know, you were going through, because there were various cases you you were working on as well as Ina's throughout the book, right? Um, in particular, there was one where, and the way that it was described, I was like, did they mummify this person? Like, did they just put like lacquer over this person? Um, is also one I was sharing with Brett too and saying like, you know, back in the day, like not too far long ago, there wasn't really like a process, like a paper trail process. Like I'm sure there was, but then eventually it's lost or forgotten about. And I was like, could you imagine like somebody's body is just forgotten about and stored in an attic? And they're like, oh, hey, we found this while we were decluttering. What should we do? And I thought it was really interesting that Amy has a particular focus on how these remains are handled and the respect that they're given, regardless of the length of time that's passed. So even if it's from like the 1800s or 1900s or, you know, yesterday, she takes the same care and takes the same type of or has the same type of awareness, which I thought was really interesting. I was like, because how... I think for the average reader, they don't think about things like that. They're not like, oh, if I saw a bone from the 1800s, I would just like grab it and move it around, you know, and like, oh, okay, great. Um, But not I I don't think that they would feel the same way if they saw somebody's, you know, remains now and be like, oh, we got to be super respectful. So there's kind of like a disconnect with the length of time that's passed when a body is found like or when these um, I don't know what what they're called, like educational remains. What, What do we call those when they're like given to a university and things like that? So, yeah, those are like usually like um, medical donations, you know, or Mm -hmm. educational donations. Um, And there are a lot of anthropologists working on trying to trace the origins of those as well, because a lot of those donations are extremely questionable. Questionable? Um, (laughs) Yeah. They may have come from people who have been incarcerated. Um, They may have Mm -hmm. come from overseas. Um, They may have come from indigenous people. Um, There are a lot of complex issues, more than I could get into this book, but there are books out there about that. Even me just touching on NAGPRA in the book, which are our federal rules about returning remains to indigenous peoples, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that Amy's view of it, and I think that was a really apt observation you made, that the further we are away from human remains, the less connected we feel to them. 
mm-hmm. a tenant of the forensic anthropologist I've worked with. And I mean, that's technically an official title with a certification, right? They're biological anthropologists who practice forensic anthropology, but mm-hmm. they teach their, hu- they teach their humans. <laughs> they teach their humans. Good yeah. words. <laughs> they teach their students from the first day that they are handling humans. And that the word remains comes second, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is still a piece of a human being. Um, and as soon as you start treating human beings like debris, what is the point of the work that you're doing, right? There's no point to it. So even if you have a single element case, and that's a case where you might have a toe or a femur or a mandible, I mean, it's still a human being. And mm-hmm. it's easy for all of us to understand the horror of that when you see the mummy that we saw in the attic. And mm-hmm. that was a small woman who had been bilaterally bisected, you know, she'd been bisected um, and she had been turned into a mummy by an amateur scientist at some point. Um, and I would argue there was no paper trail on that body, most likely, um, besides a donation letter, probably somewhere mm-hmm. way back. But um, people were pretty much allowed to do what they liked up until a certain point, um, you know, mm-hmm. for scientific or educational purposes. And I'm putting educational in quotes there, right? Air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this woman had been coated in resin um, and a resin that's probably going to certainly mean we cannot identify her because it's destroyed. Yeah. It's destroyed her bone. It seemed hopeless when I was reading it. And I was like, that's so unfortunate because you know how how Amy and other um, forensic scientists and things like that can do so much with so little yeah. and being able to like drill down into something to get in, you know, get DNA or to get something. And I mean, obviously like, do we, did we think that probably when that happened that they knew that this was going to be the case that it would be, I don't think they were worried about future identification of a person. Right. Um, it's really, it was really sad. It was kind of one of those moments in the book where I was like, man, this person's been reduced to a science experiment. And this the scientist was so disconnected from the humanity side of just being a regular human that they did what they did. Because it was, in my opinion, like it was really grotesque and it was unnecessary. Um because, you know, I support teaching hospitals. I support donating your body to science to help because cadavers um, are difficult to come by these days. Um, on the educational side, I have friends who are in medicine, you know, who are thankful to have had the opportunity to get, you know, I don't know what it's called, on-body experience yeah. um, with cadavers and stuff to be able to do that. And those people who have selflessly given themselves to science to do that, I don't think anybody ever thinks that that's something that could happen to them. You know, that's like, I'm giving it to a good cause or I'm doing this. And if this person was voluntarily, like, decided to do it, if if we imagine that that was the case, then I, I can't imagine that this was the result anybody would have wanted for themselves or for anybody they cared about. I can almost guarantee you this is someone who was one of the most marginalized people in society, um, someone mm-hmm. who was uh, perhaps at a poor farm, um, a person of color, perhaps, you know, <clears throat> th- th- that's who we're going to be looking at in terms of people yeah. who would have had their bodies desecrated. So there's so many levels there of oppression 
um, and desecration. I don't know. It's a really affecting experience to be in a place with the remains of a person who have literally and figuratively been treated like a Halloween decoration. Because not mm -hmm. only was this very small woman, very small, you know, like she was about Amy is a tiny person and she's about Amy's size. Um, mm. that the people at this school, and let me stress here, this school did not ask for this. They are a very old school that was at one point, um, you know, basically a monastery, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. quite the right word for where, uh, non-Catholic, um, learned folks go to study. Yeah, they, were, they weren't monks, but, you know, like go to study, you know? Yeah. Um, but they discovered this and then immediately began trying to do the most ethical things possible. They are really lovely people. Um, and teaching yeah. their students, you know, make, having their students do archival history, ethics, like the whole yard. Like they're the best school possible. Um, I commend them. But yeah. they began going through the, all the archives and they found that, you know, 100 years ago, this woman's remains were used in a Halloween uh, haunted house. And there were still little remnants of the wig that were put on her. Um, That's so disgusting. It was just, you know, and they were horrified. We were horrified. Yeah. And, but it also, you know, makes me think about what do we do that will horrify people a century from now? You know? True. True. You know, ha you know humanity's empathy, hopefully continues to develop and hopefully the way that some of the ways in which we treat people living and dead now will be seen as unthinkable at some point. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's really sad to think about. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So that's what I'm here for. What do you hope? <laughs> I know, right? Thanks. Uh, making us think about things. What do you hope in that vein, right, that readers get or will take away from lay them to rest in terms of awareness and action regarding cold cases and unidentified victims? So I wrote this book because I needed this book. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. What I am is a researcher um, mm -hmm. who's good at research, and I'm a writer, and I like to think I'm a pretty good writer. You and are. Thanks, buddy. Not 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 the not the best either, but pretty good. And what I am most passionately is a lifelong learner, and I really love and appreciate um, the skills of other people and working with talented people who care. That's what matters to me mm -hmm. the most. And I like to say that I collect the people that care the most and I hang on to them. That's what I do. And over the past couple of years, I've been privileged enough to build a group of talented scientists um, around me who like to collaborate and like to mm -hmm. donate their time and money because this doesn't pay. Uh, we do this for free, you know, donate their time and money to try and work on cases that are not going to get worked on otherwise. And what I wanted readers to experience and learn the most was to get a better understanding of the forensic science that I've learned about, because this is about unidentified persons cases, but it's so applicable to the other cases we learn about every day. To know right. why cases get solved, why cases don't get solved. When people talk about this on TV, like, yes, that's actually how it goes, or no, it's not why we can't just match unidentified person with missing person on NamUs, why that doesn't work. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing people ask me all the time is, why hasn't this been solved? Well, here's why. Yes, there's DNA on file, but it's the wrong kind of DNA. We need this kind of DNA. An exhumation yeah. costs $10,000. And then there's this testing and this testing. And maybe the remains are lost. And this is what an anthropologist actually does. And, you know, here's what the genealogists yeah. do. And a lot of the genealogists are working totally for free after their jobs. And, you know, it's bankrupting them. And the, de yeah. the department has a budget of $800. What are we going to do with that and everything else? And so I just wanted people to have a better understanding of where we are, where we have to go, and to know how many unidentified people there are and to maybe mm -hmm. feel a connection and caring for those cases. And to see one of those cases get solved and to see the impact of that so that maybe next time they do see that art, they just share it. You know, and, and yeah. they feel a connection to a doe case and they do donate the five dollars to the fund or they find out about a case in their area and they, you know, suddenly go, wow, I am going to write up a paragraph about this and post it on TikTok, you know, because like yeah. something that Sarah said to me yesterday is it does start with a share. And she knows that. And this is Sarah Turney, but she knows that better mm -hmm. than anybody. Like it literally starts with a share. That can solve a case. You don't have to have, you know, a doctorate in a forensic science to help solve a case. You can do it simply by communication. Social media mm -hmm. has a low bar to entry. So you literally can right. help. That is, a, that is a responsible way to help, sharing things. So, Yep. That was literally going to be my next question, so you already answered it, is how people can become more involved um, or contribute, you know, to the cause of identifying and bringing justice to cold case victims, which is partly, you know, supporting the work of others, donating to causes um, like the Trans Doe Task Force, uh, the DNA Doe Project. I mean, there, it, seasons of season of justice, like there's so many causes out there that help identify um, and sponsor the identification of, you know, does out there. So it'd be really helpful. And if you don't have the ability to contribute, you know, money, you can contribute time. You can contribute an opportunity to share across your platform. Think if you have a large platform or you've taken some time to build it. Um, I've noticed that in some of the cases that I've decided to share on social media that doesn't necessarily go with my follower count, right? Like my, I've had videos go viral, if you will, on TikTok and on Instagram Reels because I'm using the right hashtags or I'm I'm sharing a case that's, you know, really important to share. Like we just dealt with the young lady who uh, was abducted out of the state park in New York. Right. And there was a huge calling into that, even the Carly Russell case, which, you know, divisive now. But at the time, it was something people needed to know and needed to hear about because there was so much um, information that was, you know, out there and, and hoping people saw something and would report it. Um, but are there any new projects or cases for you on the horizon that you're working on, whether it's in podcasting or in writing? Is there anything you can share with our audience that we have yes. to look forward to? Yes and yes. First, I want to say we are not done with the case that's in the book. I'm currently mm -hmm. working with her family. Um, they were just granted a season of justice grant for a family awareness grant. Amy, Michael, and I are offering a joint $10,000 reward in her case um, that never expires. So that's available. What's really exciting is that Season of Justice not only awarded a grant to her daughter, Crystal, um, but 
this billboard is going up all over Tennessee. And Tennessee is, this is a little nugget from the book, Tennessee is where the woman identified, um, it was formerly Ina Jane Doe, disappeared from. So it's going up all mm-hmm. over Tennessee in the month of Wonderful. October to line up with where the book, uh, the lineup with when the book Six. is coming out. And, and they are plastering mm-hmm. it. So it's going everywhere. I love that. Right from where she disappeared. Um, so we're really excited about that. But the biggest thing that your followers can do, when you start seeing the social media for that, I've already made um, homicide posters, unresolved homicide posters. Um, please, please, please share them. Make a TikTok. That would be incredibly helpful. Um, I do have information available on the case. Um, it's, you know, out there for you. You can talk about it. Um, if you read the book, do a review, pull stuff from the book. You can just, you know, you don't feel crazy, weird about citing me. Just say, hey, this room lay them to rest and then just talk. That's fine. You know, I'm not going to sue you. Yeah. Um, it'd be nice. 100 percent plan yeah. to plagiarize yeah. you. Just FYI. Sh- I mean, <laughs> shout out the book, please. Like I need some sales. Right. Yes. Like, I, uh. I, I I am. I told you, New York Times bestseller. That's our manifestation. That's what we're trying to get here. Somebody manifest for me because I'm real bad at that. Um, but, know. you know, please make a video. Um, get that poster out there and just share as much as possible because what her daughter needs now, like she knows that her mom did not leave her. Now she needs to know who killed what her happened. mother. So that mm-hmm. is what she needs. And that's what we're helping with. So that is what we need. So that that's big. Um, in terms of the fall line, we're working on a series of 22 doe cases from Tennessee. Wow. 22. Um, wow. Yeah. We have a good relationship with Metro Nashville. Um, and so he was like, how about 22 cases? So I have 22. <laughs> you good with 22? <laughs> yeah. Um, so four of those cases are cases where there are no remains available. So no body cases. Um so I'm actually going to be doing some crowdsourcing to help me with a few things there, um, especially yeah. in terms of um, some jewelry, some names of people. I have some possible first and last names of people who went missing in the 80s. So I'm really going to be looking toward audiences in the Southeast for help there. Um, one strange thing is checking along. We're having fun. We have some great releases for October. We're doing two famous cases, uh, The Bell Witch and Jersey Devil, just for kicks. Ooh, fun. And I'm writing a fiction novel. <gasps> I'm excited about that. I love it. I mean, I truly do love your work. I mean, the the style of writing that you did, even just for this book, was really great. And I, again, appreciate your delivery. I told you this recently on One Strange Thing, that your, your cadence in the episode, because I consider myself to be a podcast listener first, before I'm a podcaster, before anything. I'm a consumer of podcasts, and I have just... Um, a voracious need along with reading to listen to podcasts. I listen to them all day, um, regardless of what I'm doing. And so your podcast is one, especially one strength thing. Um, it helps me focus on the story. And sometimes I just like aimlessly listen to other podcasts because I'm like, oh, I just I want to make sure A, I'm supporting my friends, but B, this is something I'm interested in. But I already I already know the story. So I just hear snippets of if there's anything new. Um, and I would encourage everybody to check out One Strange Thing because it is a really great podcast, along with The Fall Line, the Samuel Little um, case, the, the long form that you did over Samuel Little's um, victims was incredible. Um, it gave me what I wanted out of it, which was I wanted to understand what happened, who the victims were, how this went, um, you know, when it, how he went about everything um, without knowing too much about him. 
which I think you did an excellent job of, because I could give two craps about Samuel Little. I want to know about these individuals who, because, you know, who is he at the end of the day other than a killer, right? Like, he's not the important part of the story, like you said. It's the people whose lives were taken. Like, who are they? How did they come about um, crossing paths with him, et cetera? So I think you did a really fantastic job, both you and Brooke did, and the rest of the team that helped support you on the fall line um, all did a really great job of that. So our conversation, unfortunately for you guys, not unfortunately for me, because she's my friend, I can talk to her whenever I want to, is coming to an end. But, you know, I could chat with you for hours about anything. We've done that before. I've just gone back and forth on Facebook Messenger, um, just (laughs) asking you random questions. Now, one of the things I'm most excited about is that I'm going to be giving away two signed copies of Laura's book um, and an advocacy and awareness t-shirt that we have for the True Crime Podcast Festival and in general um, as merch, if you will, for across the platforms that I have. Um, and it's open to anyone worldwide. So if you are in uh, Zambia, great. If you are in Helsinki, amazing. You can, as long as you can get mail there, I can send it to you. I'm very keen on sending international mail. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. I love it. Um, so In order to be entered into the contest to win a signed autographed copy of the book, you need to be following The Fall Line um, or lay them to rest on social media or both if you'd like to. Why not? Um, You can follow me secondary on Instagram, Lainey Hobbs VO. Subscribe to True Crime Convos on any podcatcher. Same for The Fall Line. One strange thing. Please do it. It helps. Um, Send me a screenshot of the proof of your follow. You'll be entered to win with that. If you make a minimum of a $20 donation to either the FAIR lab, and that's Amy's lab. Um, They take donations. It's a nonprofit lab, and they use it for identification or, let's say, uh, Transdo Task Force. Great. If you make a minimum of a $20 donation to either of those causes, you'll receive a double entry into the giveaway. I'm also going to include that information in the show notes and the description when we put this on YouTube. Now, Laura, where do you prefer people follow you? So they can follow me anywhere they want except for my private account. Um, So I'm using Lay Them to Rest. Uh, That's my Instagram account, but it's also like my writer account. I'm just titling Mm -hmm. it that so they can find me. But if they just search Laura Norton, they'll find that too. They can follow me there on Instagram. They can follow me on TikTok at Laura Norton. Um, Lainey was being nice, but like I am truly just learning to use it. So like patience with me, please. Um, I'm a watcher, not a producer. Um, Twitter, but I'm barely on Twitter because for obvious reasons, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, Facebook, I never go there except to post links to my shows. So Instagram is probably the place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then I will include all of the social media handles that are approved for following um, on the show notes and, or sorry, in the show notes and on um, social media to make sure when we're promoting the episode that it is um, tagged appropriately. Um, don't forget, you can also go through the Hachette um, giveaway that's happening with the ability to get with Josh and Laura on a Zoom call and understand their investigative process and how they're helping um, solve cases. Josh has helped do that. If you listen to True Crime BS, he's um, assisted in the identification of a, a doe. So it's incredible work that they're doing. Please support it. Um But other than that, Laura, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for giving me, you know, this 
pleasure, this honor of being able to talk to you. I feel like one of the cool kids um, uh, that you take me seriously enough <laughs> to trust me doing something like this. So I appreciate it because I do look up to you. Um, I think you are incredible. And I don't want to gush too much about you because I know it'll probably make you uncomfortable. And you're probably like me, terrible at accepting compliments. But um, you are great and amazing and wonderful and all of those incredible things. So thank you very much for joining me here and sharing your book with our audience. Well, I think all these things about you, too. You know, I mean, voiceover artist, able to organize more than one person, you know. So I, I agree. I'm just making this face because I have never received uh, this many compliments before. In succession. <laughs> yeah. right? like, so I'm like, I'm like, is she going to text me and be like, psych? You know, yeah, it'll be like uh, erase that from your brain. It was just for show. Yeah. No, I really appreciate <laughs> no. it. I had a great time. Good. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Please check in next week. We are going to be going live. We did this pre-recorded a because I get really nervous doing interviews. So I like to be extra graceful to myself and make sure um, that I don't ask dumb questions. But as an educator, Laura will say there are no dumb questions. There are not. So there you have it. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to True Crime Convos. I'm your host, producer and editor, Lainey Hobbs. You can follow me on social media on Instagram at Lainey Hobbs VO. If you have a case suggestion or a topic you'd like me to cover, please email tcfcpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to my guest, Laura Norton, for joining me on today's episode of True Crime Convos. Don't forget you can listen to, subscribe, and rate the Fall Lane podcast, the One Strange Thing podcast, and pre-order her book, Lay Them to Rest. We'll see you next time. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.